Welcome to the Graceway Bible Church Podcast, a place to be immersed in teachings from God's Word. We hope you will be blessed by the Word of God as we discover together what our Heavenly Father wants us to understand. If you would like more information about our church, how to know Jesus as your Savior, or teachings from the Bible, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org. Join us now as we dive into God's Word. Today we're going to uh, look at a prayer in the Scriptures, and this prayer in particular is uh, going to look at the um, the longest prayer in the Bible. So you can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. It is the longest prayer in the Bible, but I want to tell you first about, it, about the shortest prayer in the Bible. Do you know where the shortest prayer in the Bible is? It comes from that story of, of Jesus who was walking on the water in the midst of a storm, and Peter, bringing the brave guy that he is, or ADHD or whatever he had, he decided he wanted to get out of the boat and walk on that water. And it was hard, so he started walking toward Jesus. In his walk, though, he started paying attention to all the things around him, and he fell under the circumstances. You know what that means, right? When you say to someone says to you, how you doing? And you say, well, under the circumstances. Well, I, I got to say, what are you doing down there? I mean, you don't have to be under the circumstances, not if you're a Christian right? And so, but he got under the circumstances, and, and so he calls out that prayer, and he says, Lord, save me. If you've never prayed that prayer, that is the first prayer you pray. Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus was right there to uh, walk with him, then back to the boat. We all need that prayer in our lives. We need to be able to come to him and say, Lord, save me. Today we're going to look at the longest prayer in the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9, and I want to take you through it, but what I'd like you to do is start by um, standing up with me, and I'm going to read now the introduction before we get to the prayer as we all stand together. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So this, they're very serious about this. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. A quarter of the day. Could that be like three hours? A quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made a confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless, that's the word Baruch, which we're going to be singing in just a moment, Baruch, the Lord, Adonai, your God from everlasting to everlasting. And so now the prayer is going to begin. You may sit down. And before I, um, I share with you this prayer that we're going to go through very carefully, I want to talk to you about entering the Holy of Holies because that's what I imagine is taking place in this prayer. When you enter into the Holy of Holies, just imagine this. You've got the temple, and you've got the holy place, and then you've got this big curtain, and if you go behind the curtain is one piece of furniture, that is the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat with the big uh, angels above it. And when you enter behind that veil, just imagine you're the only person who can go in there. You're the high priest. And you can only go in once a year, and this is the day. And you move the veil back so you can get behind it, and you can go in there into this. The curtain's very high, higher than the ceiling. It's very high. And as they go in, as you go in there, it's kind of uh, spooky. It's kind of... Uh, awesome. It's kind of reverent. 
maybe even a little bit scary. The priest had a rope tied around his foot in case he dies in there. They're going to pull him out. They're not going to, nobody else is going in there. This is a very special place as you come in there because the only piece of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, as you know, is the, it led the people through the wilderness. It was the Ark of the Covenant that came to the Jordan River, and when it did, the waters parted and they walked through. It's this Ark of the Covenant that represents the very presence of God. And here you are, you and I, we're walking into this Holy of Holies. And that's what I imagined as I studied this passage this week. I'm walking in the very presence of God. There are three things about God we must understand as we go into this prayer. You're going to see them in the passage, and you need all three of these things in order to trust the Lord. One, that he's in control. Two, that he's good. And thirdly, that he cares. He cares about us. All three of those. If he's, if he's in control but not good, then you don't want to trust him. The fact that he cares makes him intimately interested in your life and my life. So that's what we're looking at here in the midst of this. Let's look at the, the verses. I'm sorry, take me back one. Oh, I'll take me back one. Sorry, I'm going to let you control it, and I will not. Go to the next slide. There we go. Here's the prayer. Blessed, that's Baruch, be your glorious name, that's shame, bless the Lord, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are Yahweh, or Adonai, you alone. Those are the words we're going to sing in our song in a moment. That's how the prayer opens up. You have made heaven, and notice the God is in control part here. You have made the heavens... The heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. See, God has this plan. He's in control. And brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites. And the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Now, that's verse 8. You've kept your promise, for you are righteous. Jot that down. Just put a star by verse 8. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But now as we enter verse 9, we're going to see God's care and His personal nature that He cares for us. He says, and you saw their affliction. God sees your pain. you just got to know this. If you're struggling in your life today, God sees that. Not only sees it, you saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders. God's doing something about their problem against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew, see, God is intimately caring for the people here. We see the care nature of God here. You knew that they, that's Pharaoh, acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them. You're going to see this idea of God leading them. He's going to continue to lead them even when they fail, but this leading is so important. And, and notice it says you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules. I, I underlined the right rules because that's our word, shafat, the right rules. 
There's a lot of wrong rules being presented to us by the world, but there are the right rules that God has laid out for us, the code that helps us know how to live life successfully. That's the shafat, the right rules. And true laws, good statutes. Underline the word good there. That's the word tov. We'll see it five times in the passage. I'll comment it more in a moment, but they are good. God's statutes are so good, and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by your Moses, your servant. You gave them, here's God caring again, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is all about God. Flip to the next slide. These are the things we're talking about about God, that God is in control, that He's good, that He cares. This is the description we've already seen about God here, but we come back to the passage. Go to the next slide. It says, but, but they and our fathers did three things. We're going to see what those three things are, but let's go to the next slide. Because this is man. This describes who, what man is like. It's rebellious, prideful, and it's a selfish attitude. We can see ourselves there. And we're going to see it over and over again in this passage. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, pridefully, stiffened their neck. That's this uh, attitude, selfish attitude. You know how that is. Sometimes a child says, no, selfish attitude, stiffened their neck, and did not obey. They rebellious, your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Now, you notice I've circled the conjunctions here because we're going to go back and forth between God and his greatness and man in his weakness. So it says, but you are a God ready to forgive. Notice this verse, verse 17. You're going to mark it again. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That word steadfast love is the word chesed. This is one of the very important theological words of the Old Testament. C-H-E-S-E-D. Write that down. Circle that word, steadfast love. This is the covenant faithfulness of God. It is the um, infinite love that God has for us. It's translated steadfast love here. Sometimes it's translated tender mercies. But it's this idea that God has chosen to love us based on his promise, not on our behavior. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that we see in this passage, and he did not forsake them. It's this powerful thing that God has done. And verse 17 is going to help us understand the posture that this great God has with weak people. So let me show you in the next slide this posture of what it looks like because you can see in these verses that there is this posture that God has. We already read verse 8. It says, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. This is God's posture toward us. He's faithful. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. That's his posture toward us. You and your great mercies, we're coming to this verse in verse 19. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go, even when they were messed up, even they were doing the wrong thing. God has this posture that he has toward us. Now, some people don't understand this posture. They think differently about God. 
Some people view God as, his posture is that he's like this genie. If you rub him in a particular way, he's going to give you what you want. And so there's a real wake-up call when tragedy comes into their lives or disappointment happens or things don't go their way. And they go, well, what's the deal here? God's supposed to make me happy. God does not have a posture like that for us. There are some who believe God has this posture of judgment. He's watching you to see if you're doing the wrong thing, because if you do the wrong thing, he's going to throw lightning bolts down at you and get you. God doesn't have that posture either. God is this, well, look at the words, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake him. That is God's posture toward us. Now, some, you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, I've done really bad things. I mean, you don't know how bad the things I've done because they're so bad, I don't think God could still have that posture toward me. That's why we need the next verse. In verse 18, it says this, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, even when they got that bad, and they said, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Even when they were doing the wrong thing, there was always this light. Come on, you can do this. This is where you need to go. It's the same thing God does with us. There's nowhere you can go that's outside of God's grace. There's always this pointing back. There's always the cloud. There's always the pillar of fire that's drawing us back to the Lord. You gave your good spirit. That's our word, tov to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. And I'm going, wait a minute. They lacked nothing? I mean, if I was in the wilderness, I would have said, where's my house? Where's the outhouse? Or where's the bathroom? I don't know how they handled that kind of problem out there as they're walking around in the wilderness. I can think of a lot of things they didn't have, but the Bible says they lacked nothing which could lead us in a whole tangent about contentment with what we have instead of complaining about what we don't have. But it says very interestingly that these, that these uh, Israelite people wandering around lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you have told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their, gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possessions of houses full of all This is a fun phrase here. It says good things. I I know that's what you can see here. But in the Hebrew, it says good goodness. It repeats tov twice. So it says tov, and then it's another form of tov. In other words, the good goodness. This is how God works in our lives. He gives us the good goodness in our lives. It's such a beautiful word, this word tov. We see it first in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And God saw the light, and it was tov. It was good. And every day thereafter, God created the seas, and it was tov. 
He saw the fish and the animals. He said, it was tov. It's good. That's good. This is the goodness of God being demonstrated until he gets to the last day. And the last day, he looks at it and he says, this is very good. That's where we live. We live in the goodness of God. Then we get to the next chapter where God creates man. And he looks at him and he says, this is not good. And so he creates woman. It's fun to see all of the tov take place throughout the Bible because we trust in the goodness of God. That's where we live. God has given us all these good things to enjoy. And if you recognize the goodness and you live in the goodness of God, then even the challenges that you face in your life, you can handle. Because God has given you every good thing. And it's right there for you, this goodness. It's just a beautiful word. He describes it more. He says, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat. I like that word. They became fat. And delighted themselves in your great goodness. I underline great because this is gadol. You remember gadol. This is the word used by Nehemiah when he says, I can't come down to you guys because I have a great work. We also have a great work, and we're not going to stoop down to the other kind of stuff that goes on. We have a great work. It's used later to say, this is our great God, and now it describes God's goodness. That God's goodness is so great. But look at the next verse. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. You're going to get kind of embarrassed, I think, for the people here, as I do. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies, who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard. This is the compassion of God. Just cry out to the Lord in the midst of your challenges. God will hear them. He heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. That's the... the, uh, the um, whole book of Judges is described there. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. I'm starting to feel embarrassed for these people. They just can't get it together. But if you have an addiction problem, then you know what this means because you say, oh, man, I don't think I can come to God again. Here I failed again. But they had rest, and they did evil before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet, here we go again, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. Ooh, that's an interesting statement. You see, if you take on the code of the world, it has all of its consequences that you can't see, and you live by them. That's really sad. And here's what they did. They turned a stubborn shoulder and uh, stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. This is the description of these people who were just unwilling to respond to the Lord. So let's take the next slide. Many years You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give an ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, 
In your great mercy, do you see the contrast between God's greatness and human frailty that we must experience in our own hearts and recognize who God is? If we don't rely on God to validate us and we find ourselves secure in who we are in God, then we continue to look to other people to validate us. It's dangerous. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and, there's our word, chesed again, steadfast love. And see, now, now they're right in a place where they, they need God's care. They want it. And so they're coming out to God. This is what they're praying. Lord, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests. And, flip the page there our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt, and there's our word. This is God's posture toward us. He has dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments of your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and in your great goodness, is God's goodness again, gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, and that's what happens when you live by the world's code. You become a slave. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, this is the tobe, this is where we want to live, in God's good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And it's rich Yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They ruled over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And we can come before the Lord. Please hear my cry, Lord. I am in great distress. And now they come to their conclusion of what they want to say as we look at the last words of this chapter. Because now they're saying, okay, we're in this place again, but now we're going to do it differently, Lord. This time, this time we're going to remain faithful. Verse 38 says, because of this, all of this, we make a firm covenant, not just a regular covenant. We're going to make a firm covenant this time, Lord. We're going to do it better, and we're going to put it in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So they were making this great commitment to the Lord. And, and the, imagine going into this holy, holy of holy place. And you're in there in the presence of God, and this veil is there that separates the people. This veil doesn't stay that way. And so we read in the Gospel of Luke, in the middle of the greatest day in human history, we read the story about the crucifixion. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. You see, the, the curtain was rent in two because Jesus Christ died to satisfy the holiness of God. So that we have access now into the most holy place. And do you know where that most, do you know where the temple is today? The temple is in our hearts. Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we can enter into this holy of holies, this very special place that God has designed for us. We can enjoy that. We can spend time there. We can come into the intimate contact with, with God. And we can say, God, please forgive me again. Lord, I'm coming before you. That's why we don't have to go to a priest because the veil's been opened up. 
You come directly to God and confess your sins to God himself because you, if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What a privilege. This is the, what we're talking about, the faithfulness of God. Because God has this, this um, stance toward you and me. And when the people recognize this faithfulness of God, they do what we want to do, and there's this stamp. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There's a stamp that says, because of all this, we make a, a covenant. And I think this is what we want to say too. Lord, I'm all in. I am in. I want to trust you. I give myself to, Lord, I know I messed up today, but I'm giving myself to you 100%. Lord, I am all in to serve you. In the midst of whatever challenges take place, I am all in. I'm going to love you with all my heart. I want to come in and be in that special place of intimacy with you. That's what's being talked about in this passage. Such a beautiful, beautiful story, a beautiful prayer that we can understand and appreciate and value because God has something very special for us. It is intimacy with Him. That's what He gives us. It's a privilege for us to know Him, to trust Him, and to have that close relationship with Him. And that's why we bless the Lord. Thank you for sharing in this message. We pray it will make a difference in your life. Please consider joining us for our Sunday morning and evening worship services. For location and more information, visit our website, www.gracewaybc.org, and listen next time to learn more. May the God of peace richly bless you through his Son, Jesus Christ.